da 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 yeah <laughs> no that theme has been on my brain all night because we have been anticipating this episode for a very long time like three months now because it's a big undertaking to go over all of the harry potter franchise oh yes so big in fact that um I'm just not even going to do a bit. We're just going to go straight into the theme song. You're a wizard, Harry. (laughs) I'm a what? I'm a what? This is very exciting. (laughs) Oh. So, yes, uh, I have alluded to it in a few of our past episodes, and we are here right now. We are going to talk about Harry Potter today, and we are aware that it is a huge, huge topic to try and cover. So please bear with us as we hopefully talk about this in in an organized and... uh, Orderly fashion. Yeah. Organized and orderly. Yes. Both of those things. And also not take too, too long, I hope. Yeah. 15 minutes from now, we're all just frothing at the mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So, we all grew up uh, in the generation that just lived and breathed Harry Potter. Um, And I I think, Carmen, you're probably kind of on the tail end of it, and Mary Jane and I are kind of in the middle of it, and then... You know, there's another, like, five years of people older than us that I think were kind of at the beginning of it. Um, And if you think that assessment is wrong, don't be afraid to correct me. But I think that, uh, I don't know, I just, I've noticed with my younger siblings, like, they enjoy Harry Potter, but they aren't into, like, talking about it the same way that I am. Yeah, I know. And I think, I think that they kind of just got a little bit of that, like... We're younger, and we don't quite get the hype as much as you do. Yeah. There's I newer agree. there's newer things that are coming out that they're, like, obsessing about that I have no idea about, too, though. Sure. And that yeah. I probably... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and P.S. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm bad at podcasting. Did you know that? What are you talking a year about? Of, a year of doing this, and I'm bad at podcasting. We have our friend Mary Jane with us today. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> who she, is that? Like, who's that third voice? <laughs> Just like, no. So we have our friend Mary Jane with us today. She joined us and was our expert for One Punch Man <laughs> when we did that episode. Um, and it was a very, very good episode. And she mm, is thank you. just as passionate about Harry Potter, if not more so. <laughs> no idea. Than, than Carmen and I. So she is going to be our... Um, expert. Expert, I guess. I mean, I think we're all just enthusiasts at this point. That's, yeah, I that's think fair. <laughs> Audrey is the expert, and I'm the person that every couple days at work goes, and you know what else about Professor Snape? Yeah. Or about 
Harry Potter or about this thing. And then I, then I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is why we're talking about this. I'm going to get all those yeah. feelings out. <laughs> yeah. We're going to end like, oh my gosh, I've got to say, like, I am just so ready to get these feelings out. As I mentioned, we've been planning on this for months now, and, like, it's gotten to the point where, like, I was dreaming about Harry Potter, and I just, like, I need to get this out of my system, and then I need to not think about it for the next, I'm gonna say eight months for school, anyway. Like, if I have any classes that talk about Harry Potter, I'm just gonna, like, flip the desk or table over and walk out and just We're be done. like, no. Right. And they're gonna Potter's be like... Dead to me. <laughs> Why do you hate Harry Potter so much? I don't hate it. I love it with every fiber of my being. Now <laughs> shut up. <laughs> That's what it feels like, though. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in my English class last semester, actually, we, we read a paper that somebody had written on um, bad feminism in 1991's Beauty and the Beast uh, <laughs> from Disney. And, like, just the whole time, like, you know, I had, like a white knuckle grip on oh, this yeah. essay as I was reading it. And I was just like, you're so wrong about so many things. I mean, they were right about a lot of things, <laughs> but also they were wrong about a lot of things. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And I just like wanted to stand up at the front of class and just be like, listen up, yo. Yeah. You've got some I'm gonna strong lay feelings down. about, yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, I agree with Audrey's earlier comments about, um, about kind of like being in the middle of it. Cause growing up before Harry Potter, um, I was reading like the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and, you know, trying to get into the Silmarillion. And I felt like Harry Potter was like, not that it's never been done before, but I don't know if you've ever tried to read the Silmarillion. It's like reading Leviticus, yeah. except with magic and like <laughs> elves. And like for a 12 year old, that's like, Oh, I love I love the Silmarillion now, but as a kid, it yeah, was like, that's a rough who, yeah, who are all these people that are all related to each other, and, and then all these the Noldor go this way, and the Sindar go this other way, and it's just like, what is happening? And so I feel like that was kind of part of the appeal of Harry Potter. It was like it was magical, but it wasn't like overwhelming. Yeah, it was, it was graspable like, too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I'm a kid and I could be a wizard. Yeah, it sucks. What if a giant broke into my house? It's <laughs> <laughs> so magic, truly. So, so since you started off talking about your history of uh, Harry Potter in your own personal life, tell us uh, any, do you have any like specific like fond childhood memories of like getting into it and being in the middle of it? I remember being the last person in my family every book to read it because I was the youngest. Yeah. And so I always had to wait till the very end. Um, so <laughs> that, there was that. Um, I also, like I said, uh, remember just kind of like, so um, I've, I've mentioned this to Audrey a couple times, but I'm really dyslexic. Um, I've kind of gotten over it as I've gotten older, but all through like junior high, high school, age um i was homeschooled most of uh, my adolescence because i just couldn't read or write like at all yeah. and that's all i focused on in homeschooling was learning to read and write and when i was learning to write i actually wrote everything backwards like it was flipped in a mirror and if 
like if you showed me my writing and someone else's writing, I could tell that they were different, but I couldn't tell like, why they were yeah. different. And like, I couldn't visually make sense of it. And so I read a lot um, just to like learn to read. And it was really hard to find books that were kind of accessible to me, but not like l- low enough. Just to not quite hold your interest. In terms yeah. Of I read the entire Babysitter's Little Sisters Club series, <laughs> and I wanted to rip my eyes out like while I was reading it, but oh, no. I knew that I had yeah, to read it or else I wouldn't learn to read it. <laughs> yeah. I just... And so I got a hold of Harry Potter, and I was like, ah! Oh, yeah. Like, Life-changing at that point. Yes. It's like, it's not so hard, but also the plot is complicated enough that, yeah. like, at, you know, 14 years old, I'm like, oh, I actually care about this. Oh. Yeah, it's exciting. I know a lot of people who got into reading. Um, I mean, like I know people that have never read in their life, like never read books. But I remember the first time saying, them telling me that they had read Harry Potter and that they're like, I like books now. Like, I didn't know they could be like this. And it like, seriously, it just it opens doors, you know. Mm-hmm. It's okay. So what was your uh, getting into Harry Potter? Carmen? I can't quite remember. I just remember reading them with my year younger cousin, Brooke, and I told her about them and I was on like the second book or something. And when I told her about them, I saw her a few months later and she was already halfway through the fourth one or something. And she was way ahead of me and I was like so upset, but she had plowed through them. And then um, we'd always go see the movies that came out around Christmas time because family would be around at that time. So I always remember going to the theater and seeing the new Harry Potter movies every Thanksgiving yeah, I kind of I I mel I I got into the books and the movies at quite the same time. I was mm. a little late. Yeah, that's being older. It was like when they were coming out, we never thought that they would be movies. Right. I don't think Audrey yeah. and I. And then yeah. they were like, "Oh, they're going to be movies." And by that point, we'd already read all of them, and it right. was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I was definitely. I mean, I do remember anticipating the trailer after finishing the first book and then seeing all the things that they were portraying, like what Draco Malfoy looked like and what the snitch looked like. And you'd like compare it with all your friends and be like, look at this. Like, yeah. I can't believe they made him look that way and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, it was much of the same time. I didn't, yeah, I didn't quite get on them as quickly as a lot of other people did. And But I was younger a little bit. Yeah. And I. For some reason, the years like 1999 and 2000 are just like so, so vivid for me for like a whole heck of a lot of reasons. And so in particular, a lot of like Nickelodeon related stuff um, stuck out in my head because like SpongeBob SquarePants came out, um, I think 99, maybe 2000. And like, I have a very vivid memory of watching the very first broadcast of the very first episode. And it came after the Kids' Choice Awards. This ties in, I promise. So I liked watching the Kids' Choice Awards because I was, what, 10, 11 years old at the time, and I started to understand, like, the hype around, like, the Academy Awards, but I wasn't old enough to care about the movies that were nominated and awarded, so I wanted to watch them, and I wanted to see the pretty dresses, and I wanted to be enthusiastic about them, but, like, I couldn't quite get behind any single movie. Mm-hmm. So I liked the Kids' Choice Awards because it was a award show that I cared about. And I remember that one year, I think it was 99, 
I watched it, and one of the, like, questions in the commercial breaks was, what is your favorite thing to read? And the options were Harry Potter or, like, Seventeen magazine. And... (laughs) The answer was overwhelmingly Harry Potter. Yeah. And I had never heard of it before that point. But then I saw it in, like, the Scholastic, um, like, book club mm-hmm. magazine that had been handed out in class. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but I bet it'll make me a cool kid if I have it. <laughs> it's true. So I, All the cool kids read Harry Potter. Yeah. And so I begged my mom to get it for me. And I didn't even care, like, what it was about. I was just like, everybody is in on this, and if I can get in on this, then I will be cool. And, of course, I was not, because no 11-year-old kid is cool. But (laughs) she was very nice, and she got me the first one, and then I think she also got me the second one. And after those two, I actually bought every single book after that with my own money, which is a big deal for somebody who is a young teen like it requires a lot of work to get that much money they weren't cheap either no like back in the day no still not (laughs) they were all they were all hardcovers of course and so i had to pay hardcover price and um so i got them and i read them and i got super invested in them and here we are today still talking about them almost 20 years later (laughs) but yeah i have i have just like a handful of like kind of fond memories uh regarding the books um when they started coming out and i mentioned this in our DD episode but if anybody hasn't listened to the DD episode i'm gonna retell this story my grandma was one of the people who belonged to the, like, Harry Potter is of Satan, like, hype. Yeah. <laughs> and she was so concerned for all of her grandkids because they were all reading these books about witchcraft. And the Bible says no <laughs> witchcraft. Jeez. But I have always wondered why they celebrate both Christmas and Easter. I'm like, <laughs> What? yeah (laughs) i don't understand anyway go ahead (laughs) so she was just really worried and she was like no only something that satan is responsible for would have such a cult following and be so popular and then like the book of mormon yeah (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) i'm just saying (laughs) as a mormon So finally, one of my cousins was like, Grandma, these books are good. Just read it. And if you still hate it, that's fine. But you just don't knock it till you try it. And she read the first one. And of course, one of the very last scenes is Dumbledore explaining to Harry that the reason why Voldemort couldn't touch him is because of love. Because Lily's love for Harry Potter... (laughs) protected him from Voldemort and my grandma was just like and the message of the book is just so good because the greatest power of all is love (laughs) oh grandma it's very it's very Christian in that sense I guess right it's likable it's 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 got so many good qualities to it yeah it really does a good message and also just like 
hey, remember that time when Harry Potter made a pact with Satan? And I'm just like, like what are they thinking is going to happen when they read this book? Like, they think that ch- like 12 year old children are reading that and going, I think, oh, yes, yes, I want to keep reading this. Yeah. I just think they thought they were casting spells or something, but it's, oh, man. What I would have given to be able to cast some spells. <laughs> Seriously. To be fair, they do have their um, animal sacrifice class. Yeah, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I, was, I did, not, <laughs> did not catch that. I was like, wait a second, I've missed something vital. <laughs> Good one, Audrey. <laughs> oh, thanks, Carm. I was also one of the um, fanatic teens, because the last one came out when I was, like, 17, 18, I think. And so I was old enough to drive myself, and I was old enough to have actually a decent amount of pocket money. And so I pre-ordered the book, and by that time, like, Borders and Barnes & Noble had these humongous midnight release parties. Oh, yeah. And so... I did not want to hang out there because it smelled like very sweaty human beings. But I picked up my book at midnight and I stayed up for the next seven hours. I finished Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And by 10 a.m. the next day, I was online and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's over. On my live journal, because of course I had a live journal. Oh, how tender. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I waited out in theaters for the movies um, I remember the last one I bought, I think when the last one came out, I was maybe 15 or so. And I remember my visiting my cousin in New Orleans, no, not New Orleans, St. Louis. And we went and bought it and we split it because we didn't have enough money to like buy one for each of us. So we were both reading at the same time, like lying down on either side of the book because she Aww. was a faster reader than me. And... <laughs> Just, like, trying to, like, position yourself so you could read your pages while they read their pages and stuff. I remember (laughs) wanting to, like, devour that book, but we were sharing it, so I couldn't quite do that. But I do remember waiting in line um, for the movie, the last movies, to come out. Um, Yeah. Did you ever dress up? Um, No, but I brought my wand. (laughs) (laughs) I made it out of a tree branch at girls' camp. (laughs) I whittled it, if you will. (laughs) We've made it a few minutes in so far, and we're actually keeping with our structure. So uh, we're going to actually kind of go through the books and the movies kind of one by one, Uh um, you know, and and maybe go over some overall thoughts once we do that. So uh, the first one is the Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone. Yeah. It's it's such a fancy translation. For some reason, it changes, like, it changes the image of it from even though they're technically the same, it's just the Philosopher's Stone. Like, what? Yeah, so I was reading up on it, and apparently that was part of the, like, I mean, obviously it's not, like, an actual translation from British English to American English, Uh but the publishers at Scholastic actually thought that young boys who they were like oh this is totally targeted towards young boys because of course they didn't think young girls would like this right they're like oh young boys would look at the word philosophers and they'll think philosophy and they'll be bored by it <sighs> so we're going to make it exciting and we're going to call Saucer. it the sorcerer's stone yeah. 
The book was published in the UK in June of 1997, and then it was released in America in September of 1998. It is the shortest book at 309 pages, and the book made it to the top of the New York Times bestseller list in August 1999, which is really interesting because that's almost a full year after it was published in the United States. But once it got there, it stayed there for a long, long time. For the rest of 1999 and for um, most of 2000. And because it had been on the list for so long, the paper actually separated adult and children's fiction after that into separate lists because other authors were like, I want my book to have a higher rating, but it's never going to beat Harry Potter. So can we maybe have a separate list so that those of us who are writing adult fiction can like have a shot at number one and I guess they were whiny enough that the paper relented. The movie was released in November 2001 which is actually pretty quick when you consider that like that's only four years after it was released in the UK. Mm -hmm. So it really is I think a testament to how popular the book became. Right. Like, how massively popular. And it didn't, like, it obviously didn't get there right away, but once it did, it was just, like, a tidal wave. I do want to say, the first book is my favorite one. Because I feel like I was just at that age where it was just, like, just right for me. It's so intriguing. It is, like, it's the perfect mystery. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just to this day, when I open that first chapter and the first chapter doesn't start out with harry potter it actually starts out with his uncle and his uncle kind of noticing weird things happening around him in town and like to this day i read that first chapter and i'm just like (laughs) just like it's so magical and like the rest of the book the books are like actual magic is happening and people are casting spells and drinking potions and whatever but for me it's that that first chapter oh yeah that ends with uh harry potter the boy who lived oh. and i'm just like <gasps> oh my god my childhood <laughs> <laughs> and it's so fun because they give so many little hints to how fun the magical world is there's this part right here where this they pass this woman complaining about like how how many sickles they're charging for dragon spleen or something like that and you're yeah. like what what is going on it's so much fun to hear just this completely oh it could be real even though you know it's kind of not but like it could be and just oh the intrigue and the magical feelings from that are just incomparable this it really it's so exciting yeah and it's kind of interesting i i like the way that the movies are designed because I mean, first of all, it's just really nice to see a lot of the details of things. Because, for example, like the snitch. Um, I, When I was reading the book, I always imagined the snitch to be just basically like a gold ping pong ball with wings. Right? right. Just like completely smooth. Yeah. But in the movies, like it has all of this like really delicate engravings on totally. it. Totally. And like the wings have cute little feathers on them. So I really like that. Um, and I like in the book, though, there are there are a few descriptions here and there 
that I'm just like, oh, I love this. So in, again, the first chapter, um, as Vernon is driving around town, he sees all of these odd people in odd colored clothing. And I forget because of the movies, because I think the movies kind of tone it down a little bit. But like, there's a wizard that's wearing a cloak of an emerald color. And Dumbledore is first seen wearing a violet colored robe. And like, they're just yeah. so bright. And so strange. Like, I know when they were making the movies, they didn't want to set like a circus kind of vibe. Um, because obviously, like, the subject matter does get a lot darker later on, yeah. and you don't want this, like, circus palette while you're talking about, like, here's this bad guy that's trying to murder several children. Yeah. Yeah. But I still like this idea of, like, really, really bright colored robes. Um, I think it's in, like, the second movie that you first see Cornelius Fudge, and he's wearing just, like, key lime pie stuff. Oh, yeah. And so <laughs> just, bizarre. Like, it's... I love it so much. Um, but I, I would have to agree with Mary Jane. I think the first one, I, I don't think it's my absolute favorite. I think that's Prisoner of Azkaban, but it's a very, very close second. Um, Sorcerer's Stone is because it really is just like, it feels kind of like the Wild West of this world because <laughs> there isn't really a need to set any rules or systems. Uh-huh. And so it's just like, we're going to our astronomy class and there's an astronomy tower and we're going to take a dragon up to the astronomy tower and (laughs) right it's i I was thinking um i was watching part of the deathly hollows i think it was the deathly hollows it might have been whichever one they were harry and dumbledore go to the lake and there's the whatever they're called yeah they're zombies and so I, I think what I like most about the book one isn't just like, oh, it's magical. But like, imagine if somebody came up to you and was like, hey, you know about zombies? They're real. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not just, oh, abracadabra. It's like, no, they've, we've got zombies. We've got, you know. Well, yeah, it's horrifying because you learn that they have vampires, yeah. too, at some point. Right. Yeah. And like, like, oh, my gosh. So is it all is it all real? Like, yeah. yeah. Werewolves. Oh. Like, <laughs> there's this part in a... I think it's Prince Caspia where they go to this part of the ocean and they find this, they're on a boat and they find this guy drifting out at sea. And he's like talking about how this is the place where dreams come true. And the people on the boat are like, Oh great. This is the place where dreams come true. And the guy that they find adrift is like, no, you don't understand dreams. And then it takes them like five seconds to all remember like a dream that they've had where they're just like, oh, that's not what I want. Nope, don't want this one back. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of that same feeling for me for the first book. Just like, oh, all the good and all the bad things are all true. Yeah. Yeah. Do we want to move on to book two? Sure. Let me make sure I'm not missing any notes that I want to talk about. Just some general friendship, you know. Good vibes from mountain trolls. <laughs> That's like one of my favorite parts is is the quote where it's like, there are many things that you can't not be friends after like experiencing together and defeating a 12-foot mountain troll is one of them or something yeah. like that. You're just like, oh, they're right. I, I have no idea how I know they're right, but they are, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I really, I I do have to say, I like 
watching the first movie for the reason that you can tell how excited everybody is to be on set. Mm -hmm. Like, it hasn't turned into a job for anybody at that point. Yeah. And they are still kids. So there's a bit of, like, cringe factor watching them because it's like, ooh, they're so untrained. Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, like, um, Emma Watson just, like, throws herself into the role of, like, I'm bossy and I'm a (laughs) know-it-all. Totally. Or even worse, expelled. She's, she, yeah, yeah. Um, so something I would like to talk about just from the first book, and we don't even have to include this, but this is about the story itself. And I have a question for maybe some people who understand a little bit more. Um, so when Harry is in the, or he's in front of the mirror of Erised and he sees the stone like drop in his pocket and it actually turns up in his pocket. Can someone explain the science magic behind that for me? Like it's magic. Yeah, I know. That's it's magic. (laughs) Yeah. Most of the other magic makes sense to me, but that one I have to have like some sort of explanation. I don't know why, where I draw the line, but (laughs) okay. But this is it. That's the line that you're going to draw. Yeah. The only explanation we get is from Dumbledore saying that only someone who wanted the stone but didn't want to use it could get it. And I really like that. That's some nice closure. I just don't understand where the stone came from, but whatever. That doesn't really, I guess it's, it is magic. (laughs) That reminds me kind of, of, um, honestly, Game of Thrones. The only person that would be suited for the throne would be one that wouldn't want it, you know? And... Mm. It's just like it's a, it's it's all about nobleness. It's about that Gryffindor nobleness. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. Here's our quick facts. It was published in the UK in July 1998 and in America June 1999. It is 341 pages, making it not significantly longer than Sorcerer's Stone. Oh, and I do want to just kind of mention that uh, I'm pulling from the first printing of the American version because that is what I'm familiar with. Uh I guess the text is like smaller in the UK version because those page lengths um, are actually a little smaller. But like I said, this is just what I'm familiar with. And it is consistent, again, like across all of the quick facts that I'm going to drop here. So um, everything is just accurately relative to each other. The movie was released in November 2002. It was directed by Chris Columbus, who also directed the first one, and the music was done by John Williams in both of them. Yes. And Chamber of Secrets, honestly, almost scared me away from the series. Yeah. It was a scary book for 10-year-old Audrey. And I mean, I, I do have to say I was a frightened little child to begin with, but, um, in particular, it was actually Mary Grand Lepre's illustrations for a couple of the chapter headings. And in particular, it was the chapter heading to, um, I don't remember exactly which chapter it is, but there's the one where nearly headless Nick is like fried (sighs) to a crisp. I don't know why, but. For some reason, Sorcerer's Stone was exciting, but you still had that feeling of, like, the grown-ups will show up and they'll take care of it. Exactly. That is one of my favorite parts about the books is that I think most of the people that read them, like, grew up with them and kind of grew up to learn, like, oh, eventually we're going to be, you know, Mm -hmm. the adults maybe and, 
you know, not everything is going to be have a super happy ending. That's what the yeah. books take a turn. I, I feel like Chamber of Secrets, I think it was really the part where McGonagall and Dumbledore were talking about closing the school that you're just kind of like, oh, crap, like they can't fix this. And then like Harry in the end of Sorcerer's Stone, I don't think he was actually injured. But at the end of Chamber of Secrets, he is. He's bitten by the basilisk or whatever it's called. And there's a moment where he's like dying of basilisk venom. And you're like, holy crap. And it's been a long time. They've been underground for quite some time. And no one else can get in because nobody else can speak Parseltongue. And so you're just like reading this as a child. Like, holy crap. Yeah, it's rough. Dumbledore, it hints where at are a, you? It hints at a darker world, you know? Even though they're oh. still so young. It's yeah. darkness. So I was afraid of that illustration, and then I was also scared of the illustration where um, they drink the polyjuice potion, and Harry's, like, looking at himself in the mirror, and he's got, like, Crab or Goyle's face. And I was just like, so for crazy. some reason, that illustration, to me, was just, like, the scariest thing. <laughs> it, like, almost gave me nightmares. To the point where I had to go to my parents and be like, I'm sorry, I stayed up late reading and I know I'm not supposed to, but I'm scared now. It's freaky. His eyes are like bulging. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, um, I don't know. I heard, and I don't know, I I can't verify this, but I heard that uh, Rowling actually did not like uh, LaPray's illustrations yeah and that's interesting because those were were excellent they feel iconic at this point yeah and like i get it if that is the case just because um for the most part when it comes to book covers and book illustrations it's usually the publishing company that handles that the author doesn't have much of a say in the visual aspect of their books Mm -hmm. so they didn't meet even in person until after the book started to be published. And, you know, Rowling just didn't really have a say in how they were done. Interesting. I feel like I kind of wonder if I see where she's coming from. Because at the time, I didn't care what the pictures were. But looking back at the pictures now, especially of the cover art, it just looks too happy. Like it, like yeah. you said, it's got that kind of circus vibe of like, I'm Harry Potter and it's just the Goblet of Fire. Yay. <laughs> and like, if you read the book itself, you're like, oh, that, that doesn't exactly mesh with what's going to happen. Uh, Do you think they should have been like a little more like serious? Yeah. And maybe, maybe not like, oh, we're going to make this edgy or anything like that. Right. But, maybe like not have Harry Potter smiling so much on the cover and like looking so happy to be wherever he is. Yeah. And I think the new illustrated versions of the books actually do a really good job um, of illustrating certain parts and certain aspects because like some of the illustrations are of specific scenes, but most of them tend to be just of like the characters. And so there isn't any... It obviously helps the story, but it more helps visualize the story than it does to, like, actually add to the plot. And so it just feels very matter-of-fact, which I appreciate. Yeah. 
Um, so just a few notes on the story, Chamber of Secrets. So I really love the Death Day Party, and I'm really sad that it wasn't included in the movie, because <laughs> there's a lot of aspects to that scene that just really adds flavor to the the universe as a whole. So first of all, the ghosts celebrate their death day. They don't celebrate their birthday anymore, because they aren't alive. Which is weird to me, because like, I don't know. I would probably mark my birthday even after I die because it's like, well, it's, you know, I'm not alive, but I've been existing since this day. But no, they're like, this is the day that I died. Yeah, it's the next, it's the next really important, uh, like, event, I guess. It's the most recent important event that's happened in their existence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I like that they go into the Headless Hunt Society, which you kind of see, like, glimpses of in the movies. Uh And they don't really address it, but it's. I think it's just one of those shout-outs to the, the book lovers that are like, hey, you know what this is, and people who are watching the movies and only watching the movies might not, but this one's for you. Yeah. And it is the society of ghosts that were beheaded, and they essentially play polo with their heads. <laughs> like, they all have horses, and they take off their heads, and they play polo with their heads. Yeah, it's really weird. And poor nearly headless Nick does not qualify, because he is not actually headless. Nearly headless? Yeah, that always really bummed me out, because there really is just nothing he could do about it, too. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, and, um, you know, Harry and Ron and Hermione being very, very good children. Just good-hearted children. They go to Nearly Headless Nick's death day party, and they give up going to the Halloween party for the school. Um, <sighs> the feast. They're all very jealous because the feast at the death day party is all rotted food, and there's not really exciting entertainment. And, of course, they're all thinking about the, like, good food for living people. <sighs> <laughs> the banquet, and it's rumored that Dumbledore booked a troop of dancing skeletons for the party. And I'm just like, this is the greatest sin of this book. Yeah. That they had to miss, and we had to miss, seeing a troop of dancing skeletons. Yeah, that one That one had to have hurt. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, I'm really glad we got a glimpse of the Death Day party, too. It was yeah. unique. And isn't the food rotted because, like... It, it gets a bit stronger and maybe the ghost could taste it if they pass through it or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's so <Yeah>. sad. <laughs> oh man. Um, I really like <clears throat> some of the interactions that we have with Mr. Weasley in this book because um, at the end when Ginny is like recovering and she's telling the story of what happened to her, Arthur is like, and this is an actual quote from the book. He says, Ginny, Haven't I taught you anything? What have I always told you? Never trust anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. Yeah. And I love that line because I feel like the movies kind of downplay how intelligent he is. Yeah. He just seems like kind of the stereotypical, like, sitcom dad. Yeah. But he is extremely smart. Oh, yeah. And he, you know, obviously cares a lot for his his family more praise for Mr. Weasley. Like, he's in charge of this muggle artifacts department, whatever. He doesn't live in the muggle world. Like, he's just figuring this out on his own. Well, most people are kind of laughing at him. Like, what do you want to know what spark plugs are for? Like, how many people do you know just in your everyday life who have no idea how their phones work? 
and no idea how to, you know, fix a breaker, you know, like if the yeah. lights, if the breaker flips, like how many people do you know that would just be like, I don't know how to fix this or how to shut off a, a sink that's flooding or whatever, you know, it's just like, he's trying to figure all this out on his own and he does. And yeah, anyway. And you know, I have to wonder how much more convenient some muggle solutions to some problems were for magical solutions. <laughs> Because, yeah. and you know, we don't have to talk about this now, but I do want to bring it up. The The whole communication issues, like, I know cell phones probably weren't a deal. Even, like, I don't know, I don't really understand why they don't send normal mail sometimes either. <laughs> like, yeah. phones are very, very convenient, too. Just at least landlines. And, I mean... Yeah, sometimes it's it's a it's a charming thing about the book because it makes it a little old fashioned. Like they write on parchment with quills and stuff. But I'm also just like, but isn't there an easier way? <laughs> yeah, you, know? you can't tell me the magic makes ballpoint pens not work right. You know, right, right, right. exactly. Um, that yeah. always just made me laugh though, especially how in awe Mr. Weasley is. I'm like, yeah, you know, some of it is very impressive. We did have to, <laughs> we did have to do some weird things to solve these problems, but they work really well. Yeah. Um, and one final thing that I think I'm going to mention that I love about this book in particular is that we learned that Draco Malfoy's father, Lucius Malfoy, is on the board of school governors. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's a bunch of wizards and witches that um, kind of address some of the school needs via, you know, bureaucracy. Right. And at the end, he is kicked off of the... Uh, board of school governors and he's very upset about it although he keeps you know paying money to basically influence them and like once I reached the end of the book and I realized like he was doing a lot of things specifically to like make his son's life easier I was like he's a PTA mom yeah <laughs> yeah like, he fits the bill <laughs> why didn't why didn't you bring the brownies that you signed up to bring yeah <laughs> To the PTA fundraiser. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's true though. Yeah, you get a first glimpse out of like a tangible villain too, a little bit. Like the only the only time I've never been like dissatisfied okay, I've never been dissatisfied with any of the Malfoys like casting choices. All three of them were like some of my like and you don't really meet Mrs. Malfoy near the until near the end, but all of their performances are my like some of my favorites throughout the movie. I have issues with like some of the actors and stuff mm -hmm. in other parts, except always the Malfoys. I just thought they were so perfectly casted. They're just so they look like I don't know. They just look like little silver weasels. Isn't that what Malfoy is compared to at some point? <laughs> <laughs> like they seriously, they look yep. so slick and like slimy, and they're oh, they're so good. Um. Um, I want to talk really quickly about the flying car. I mean, I know that you said that was like the final thing, but I, you know how in like cartoons, especially I, I think Adventure Time comes to mind and so does SpongeBob, but they always have that episode where like a missing pet or a missing friend like travels around town and tries to find their way home and like they're introduced to this new environment and stuff. And it's often a silent episode because it's like the pet. So, you know, they don't talk, but they just kind of wander. I always, mm -hmm. when they come back um, in contact with the car at the end of the book, after it saves them from Aragog. Ron is just like in awe. He's like, I wonder where this thing has been. I wonder where it went. And it's been in the Forbidden Forest this whole time. And I want yeah. like a short, 
I want a really short blurb written about what the car has been doing in the Forbidden Forest and how who it's been meeting and how terrified it's been yes. of everything. And then it goes completely feral and is like a pro oh. at living in the Forbidden Forest now. I really wanted to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I guess the thing about Lucius was not my last oh, thing good. because that brings up the next point, which is um, in this book, uh, Fred and George and Ron at the beginning save Harry Potter from the Dursleys. They essentially have him caged up because they're like, you're a danger to, you're a menace to society. (laughs) Because apparently Harry Potter is Spider-Man. And um, when they rescue him, they take him to their home, which is called the Burrow. And you see a lot of the family dynamics there, which is really great because there's eight kids. Ah, yes. And then, you know, the two parents. And I just... Anytime they leave the burrow, I always feel, like, unfulfilled because I just want to see more of just, like, everyday life at the burrow. And I've decided that if there is going to be any sort of Harry Potter television project, I want a 30-minute sitcom-style television series just of the Weasleys at the burrow. Just summer break, all of the shenanigans that Fred and George start... And, like, seeing Percy being, like, the uptight, like, oh, no, you're going to get in trouble. I'm it's just the mom. perfect balance of it is. chaos you know? and, and perfection. Yeah, and you have Ginny that's, like, the poor, like, she's the only girl. And so, like, she has to deal with all of her idiot brothers. Yeah. I need this. It's a perfect formula. I need this in my life. It's definitely, it's definitely darker than Sorcerer's Stone. Still not the darkest book, but... No, certainly not. I think maybe the scariest? Maybe? I, I feel like a... Uh, I feel like Sorcerer's Stone kind of established that Voldemort is a real person who's mm-hmm. actually after Harry. And then Chamber of Secrets started really getting... Kind of like, okay, we've established that he's a real person now. Here's some of what he can do. You know? Kind of a... Making him a real villain without exposing too much all at once. Right. All right. So moving on to Prisoner of Azkaban. As I mentioned, this one is my favorite, and I feel like a lot of people feel the same. I feel like I, whenever I talk to people about the series, Prisoner of Azkaban ranks pretty darn high on their list. Prisoner of Azkaban was published in the UK in July of 1999 and in America September of 1999. Which is kind of bonkers because Chamber of Secrets was actually published in America only a few months before. So Chamber of Secrets was June 1999, and then Prisoner of Azkaban was September of the same year. I remember that. (laughs) Yeah. And this is obviously where popularity was like really starting to gain some speed. It is 435 pages, which... um, is less than a hundred pages more than Chamber of Secrets, so it's like getting bigger, but it's still not significant. The movie was released um, like late May, early June, depending on where you lived, 2004. And this is actually where we get a different director. Chris Columbus had directed the first two movies. Prisoner of Azkaban was actually directed by a man named Alfonso Cuaron. 
and most people don't recognize him, at least they aren't familiar with a lot of his earlier works, because the major movies that he had released before then are Spanish language films. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of weird because he directed a movie called E Tu Mamad Tambien, which is about two men, like two very young, I mean, basically old teenagers, um, men traveling around with a woman who's like in her late 20s and there's like explicit sex and drug usage in this film. And so like he went from that to directing a Harry Potter film. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just one of those things where it's like, do you know how to direct for families? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I but. Think, yeah. He's an excellent job. But yeah, he did a really good job of setting a much darker tone. Yeah. Because yeah. in this, in this story, we have themes of betrayal and themes of, you know, personal loss and... And everlasting, like, depression. Yeah. <laughs> the Dementors yeah. are, like, the darkest part about this book to me. Mm-hmm. They, oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah, it gets... It changes. Yeah, it really does. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this... I really enjoyed this movie as well as this book. I do agree. Most of the people I talk to kind of across the board... It usually lands on Prisoner of Azkaban. It's so exciting. I think my favorite part of that movie, the part that horrified me the most, was the depiction of Lupin turning into the werewolf. Mm. And I don't know if that's how werewolves are supposed to look, but that, like, messed me up. Yeah. And it was so creepy. Like, it how was long so... his limbs were. Yeah, yeah and then I mean... he kind of, like, cowers a little bit, and then he's just, like, he goes full werewolf, you know? Yeah. And it's another one of those, oh, crap, yeah, he was the adult in this situation. Uh, he can't solve this now. I Something I really appreciate about uh, Prisoner of Azkaban was that it establishes other things that wizards are afraid of other than Voldemort. Because mm-hmm. up till this point, it's like only Voldemort. And, you know, when you live in this world where crazy things happen all the time, like, you get some pretty thick skin. You're just like, oh, yeah, that's a curse, you know, a cursed object or a curse on a person or whatever. Right. And then you start really getting into, like, no, Dementors suck out your soul. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, okay. There we <laughs> <Whoa>. go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the Dementors in the movie, like, this is another one of the shout-outs to the movie design because... Um, In my mind, when I had originally read the book, the Dementors had looked a lot like the... You know what? They looked a lot like the ghost of Christmas is yet to come from the Muppet movie. Yeah. um, Of of the Christmas Carol. And that really scared me as a child. Yeah. I imagine them the same way. Creepy. But I really appreciate that they didn't just go, like, full, big, billowing robe. I really like that they have, like, that thin, like, gauzy veil over the Dementors' faces that, like, gets sucked in when they're going to go in for, like, you know, sucking people's souls. And, like, I think it adds kind of a layer of, like, nightmare to it (laughs) that, yeah, is just really... Yeah. I feel like if they went full, like, thick cloak, it would have been, like... It could have been Sith Lord, you know. <laughs> yeah, it could have been cheesy. It could have been a little cheesier. I always thought, yeah, I thought they looked like the the screamy things in Lord of the Rings that ride the oh, yeah. the wraiths, yeah, the ring wraiths. Oh, yeah. I thought that's what they looked like. Yeah, but it was the same billowy cloak. But yeah, it, it could have lost some like 
um, unfamiliarity creep factor, you know? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, yeah, it really is so gross. You can kind of see the shape of whatever body they have, and it's, like... And she always described them as being, like, rotted inside. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, That's and, so you know, horrible. when you have, like, a thick cape and cloak that kind of hides everything, it's really easy to, like, disconnect it from humanity. But totally. when it's... When you can see those humanoid shapes, that's when you're like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't right. want that to come near me. <laughs> no. Um, one th- Another thing I want to talk about really quickly about the third book is the change that I noticed in J.K. Rowling's writing style. I feel like mm-hmm. this is the last book to be truly, like, juvenile. Um, yeah. Because she, throughout the first three books, she always asks, like, the rhetorical, like, what's going to happen next, like, through character or something like that. And those are, like, I mean, that's that's what was intriguing to to young adults reading this is, like, wait, what is, like, you know, it's just, it's really exciting. But I think this is the last book that does that. When we get to the fourth book, she actually changes her, the way that she exposes the story, you know? Right. But um, this is the last, I think it's still pretty scary and it gets pretty serious, but this is the last one where she actively asks questions like, do you get the feeling Hermione's not telling us something? Ron asked Harry, you know, it's... <laughs> Yeah. And it's it's a really cool part of the it's a really cool part of the story and how she intrigued her readers, but it is a notable um shift. Yeah, I think that she does a really good job of kind of reflecting the whole fact that like they are kids still in the way that it's written because kids up till you know, and I think she gives them a little bit more credit by starting it in the fourth book, but definitely at 13 have a very tunnel vision view of the world, you know, and their tunnel is just like me, 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 me. If you are, I mean, it's almost like they still haven't fully developed object permanence. Right. Where like, if it is not in the room with them or talking to them, it does not exist. Right. (laughs) And, you know, I, I think that the writing kind of reflects that where there isn't a whole lot of reflection on the world as a whole just very much like here's Harry Potter and his uh-huh. world you know and even even though the beginning of the book and the beginning of the story does start out with the night bus which i think is a really fun scene yeah um it it, it still is f- told from harry's point of view right i think i don't know if she, she did this on purpose but i think maybe she kind of had to shift her writing a little bit because mm-hmm. the fourth book ends with Cedric Diggory being murdered. Right. You can't really be like, hey, kids book, kids book, kids book, Cedric Diggory's dead. You know? Right. <laughs> like It really, yeah, I think that must be, as she, I'm, yeah, it was kind of starting, people, older people were starting to pick it up maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I, and you know, she, the, the thing is, the thing that fascinates me most about her is that she has, she seems to have had most of this planned from the beginning. So it definitely starts out as a children's book, but she has so many things in the woodworks that you're like she eventually knew that it would probably change in tone but I don't think she ever really expected them to be these great sagas I I'm not entirely sure but I feel like after a while she realized that she had to get into some serious stuff so that required like some background and some history and stuff like that so I think that's actually probably a good uh, segue to the fourth book um, which is Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire and I... it was my least favorite one. Yeah, you know, it's one of Sorry my least favorites too, but I am going to I'm gonna to try to um I'm gonna to try to sell it to you guys a little bit. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you're not going to have to try too hard with me because I actually, I think it ranks probably number three for me for oh, a few really? reasons. Yeah. So the quick facts, the book was published in July 2000. And by this time, it was popular enough around the world that there was no separate publishing date for the UK and the United States. It is 734 pages long, yeah. which is almost 100% longer than Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. The movie was released in November 2005, and it was directed by Mike Newell, who, if you're not familiar with his stuff, um, maybe a couple of movie titles that you might recognize, even if you haven't seen them, is Four Weddings and a Funeral and Mona Lisa Smile. So nothing, I think, as dark as Alfonso Cuaron's movies, or at least as mature. Mm -hmm. And then the music, this is the first movie where John Williams did not compose the music for it. And I think it's very noticeable, and I think that it is important to point it out, because John Williams did a really good job of setting the tone of, like, I mean, the circus theme, Right. And, like, I don't mean this as a slight, even though it sounds like an insult, but that's kind of what it is, right? I mean, you can almost hear it on a grinder organ, right? Like, But the music was written by Patrick Doyle, who, before Harry Potter, had written the music for Sense and Sensibility, which did star Alan Rickman. And Emma Thompson, who are also stars of the movies. And after that, he wrote the music for the movie Brave, the Disney Pixar film. Mm -hmm. So I think he does a really good job of kind of setting the tone of like, we can be lighthearted, but we definitely need to acknowledge that there are very serious themes that we're implementing. Yeah, I think it'd be hard to be like... Kill the spare. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> like, what? It certainly had to change. <laughs> uh, yeah, geez. so this this movie, and I think I'm going to start doing just really brief um, summaries of the books from this point. Because up till now, the books have pretty much been, Harry has problems with the Dursleys. Harry goes to school. Somebody's trying to kill Harry. Harry wins in right. the end. Does Harry have a therapist yet? <laughs> no, he does not. <laughs> Has anyone talked to him and been like, so, are you okay? Yeah. Somebody who's not also 12, preferably. <laughs> not. I mean, a lot of the adults act like they're 12. <laughs> so to be fair, that's going to be really difficult. I have beef. I have beef, but we don't have to talk about it now. <laughs> <laughs> so in this book, we really get the setting for, um, I don't know, I guess we could call it like the second act of the series. This is the beginning of the second act of the series. Yeah. And the book opens with uh, Harry being at the Dursleys and his life is actually pretty good because he told his aunt and uncle that his godfather, who's keeping an eye on him, is a convicted murderer. And he leaves out the little fact that, you know... He's not. <laughs> he's not. He's actually innocent. But it's enough to keep the Dursleys, like, wary of how they treat Harry. Yeah. The 
Weasleys send a letter, which is comically covered with a whole bunch of stamps. And, like, to the point where the address is, like, the smallest thing on the letter. And it is Mrs. Weasley asking Harry if um, he would like to join them to go see the Quidditch World Cup and asking the Dursleys for permission to uh, basically let Harry stay with them for the rest of the summer. And they say yes after Harry's like, oh, it's okay if you don't want me to go. I'll just tell my godfather that you're not going to let me go to this thing that I really want to see. And they're like, well, well, let's not be hasty here. (laughs) (laughs) They go to the Quidditch World Cup. And um, I'm going to kind of pause here and kind of open this up for discussion because I had a very different attitude towards the World Cup um, as a kid than I do rereading it as an adult. Because as a kid, I remember reading it and being like, oh my gosh, this is taking forever. We just, just go to school. Just go to school. Right. This is why I'm reading this book is to go to school. And I thought that it was all just so unnecessary. But as an adult, I read it and I'm like, no, this is actually significant world building. Yeah. Like more world building than we've seen in any of the other stories up to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my note too, is that this, like the third one ended with, you know, the, the whole template that you talked about, the go to school, have a problem, find your friends, defeat it, you know. But yeah, it changes a little bit and introduces you to the larger world and it introduces bigger issues with the characters too. And it sounds really cheesy, but it really is like the magical world around them is changing and so is their friendship. Like this is, I think, the first book where um, Harry and Ron have their like first real fight, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. real argument. And I think this is also the book where Ron starts like treating Hermione with a little bit more respect, maybe because for stupid boy reasons, but it happens anyway. Yeah. So they, this is, you're right. It is the beginning of the second act. This is like a big, it's a big shift. And it's so big that you have to wonder what it's filled with, but it's filled with like the background, all of this magical stuff that you've been reading about that you don't have really any context for. But it's, yeah, yeah it's a, it's a good one. But it, I kind of felt the same way when I was younger. I thought the Quidditch match was a lot like just any sports match. And so I was equally as uninterested in it as, as in real sports. Yeah. <laughs> and so I kind of felt the same way. But it is pretty, it is pretty necessary, especially the introduction of um, Winky, the house elf, the other house elf, mm-hmm. who is sorely missing from the movies. But um, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So I actually found out within the last month, I think, and this was a Twitter thing. Someone asked rolling on Twitter, what was the hardest chapter for you to write in the series? And she said that it was um, Goblet of Fire chapter 11. I think it was, it was either nine or 11. And it was really interesting because that was when I had actually started reading the book for this podcast. So, I mean, I'm saying really, really recently Mm -hmm. this happened. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to look at it. I'm just going to like, when I get to it, I'll acknowledge that this was the one that she had to rewrite several times and she had the hardest time writing it and then like move on. That chapter is the one where the Death Eaters attack at the Quidditch World Cup. 
And I can see how she would have a really hard time with that because it is very much like everybody is high on their endorphins from watching this really fabulous game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody's happy. We're all wizards. We can do magic. And then all of a sudden it's like, hi, so we're the bad guys. (laughs) Sorry to break up your party. (laughs) We're going to set everybody on fire and we're going to torture these muggles and um, just so you know, there's still Voldemort supporters, and we're here, and we just kind of know that he's on his way. So, <laughs> you know, if you Y'all guys watch could, out now, <laughs> if you guys could just panic for us, we'd really appreciate that. It changes quite a bit. That, yeah, and I mean, that's kind of when it introduces the really, the really big overarching theme of the series, which is like the whole. Like, it's, like, representative almost of a race war. It's, like, mm-hmm. muggles versus versus wizards, like, and them fighting about which one is superior. And it's just, oh, it's horrible to see. And I never really realized the bigger themes of it until I reread them when I was older. But they're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, moving on um, with the plot summary after this attack at the World Cup. Oh, also, Sorry. I also want to mention, um, I really enjoy in the book that they talk about the fouls that are called during the World Cup game, (sighs) just because like up till that point, it felt like Quidditch was literally just like a three rule game. Right. Like, here are the positions, you use the quaffle to score points, and the game ends when the seeker catches the snitch, and everything else is fair game. And it's kind of shown in the movies, too. Like, you've literally got people, like, kicking other players off the brooms. Right. It's like, what is this? This is Calvin Ball. This is barbaric. This is this is a nightmare. Who would actually have fun playing this game? Like, I play games because I like figuring out how to, like, solve puzzles and work with the rules right. and work to come out on top. And this is just, like... Get on your brooms and beat each other up and also score some points. Pretty much. Rugby has more rules than that. (laughs) That's essentially what rugby is, is here's a ball, beat each other up. (laughs) So I appreciate in the books, like, there are several fouls called. um, And, like, I just (sighs) thank you for establishing that there are rules. I appreciate that. Um, After all that, they go to school. And it's very exciting because this year they um, have decided, along with two other schools in the European region, to hold the Triwizard Tournament. And it is something that is held kind of Olympic style, like every few years. And everybody is invited to one place. And there are elite students, in this case, who are asked to compete in a series of tasks and it is only allowed for wizards who are of age, which I guess the age of adulthood in the wizarding world is 17. So it's really only like older sixth years and like seventh years mm-hmm. at the school. And Harry is 14 in this book, so he's not qualified. But guess what? Guess what? He's freaking Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry freaking Potter. (laughs) And you know that, uh, so at this point I'd like to bring something up because I think Audrey made a note um, in the overall 
feelings about the books and the movies and stuff, one of the first things that she noted was that Harry wants, like, none of this attention. He didn't ask for it. He doesn't enjoy Mm -hmm. it. He starts to at some point because he's a teenager and gets weird, but... But overall, it's like really unasked for. And I think while I, you know, while you're reading these books and you see his name is drawn, you're kind of horrified, but you're also like, yeah, like I knew something was going to happen. Like it's Harry. Of course it's Harry, you know, and then he's on the inside, like panicking because like he has to fight who knows what with so little knowledge of how magic works yet. And it's like it's kind of horrifying and and i i cheer for harry most of the time because i know that he's going to come out on the end because he's the book's hero but in reality it really is just like i feel i feel bad for him <laughs> he's just he's just constantly targeted and doesn't want any of it yeah not the fame not the dangers not the not not any of it, it it's a completely different type of targeting too cuz i feel like he uh in the last book he kind of mentions that like he, he, while he's afraid in situations, his will to survive is always stronger than his fear. Sure. But having your name drawn out of a goblet, like that's not the same as Voldemort is standing on the other side of the room and trying to kill you. Mm-hmm. Like it's not. a completely different it's very scenario. Sneaky. Yeah. It's and yeah. Uh, one he's easy. He's better at dealing with one than he is dealing with the other. Yeah, he's a puzzle solver. So this introduces the mystery to the book, um, because every book has a little bit of mystery to it. Uh, And the mystery is who put Harry's name in the Goblet of Fire, because this is supposed to be an incredibly powerful artifact. And it's never, I think, addressed directly in the book just how powerful it is, but it is implied that it is powerful enough that when a name comes out of the Goblet of Fire, there is some sort of like magical contract that the wizard has to hold to. Right. And there's never any consequences mentioned. But the way that the adults act is like... You have to. You have to. Like... I'm thinking it's we, something We can't like... figure it out. Like, we can't try and exempt you from this, even right. if you want to pull out, because like this is what has happened. Well, it freaks me out too, because the consequences of breaking an unbreakable vow is death. You you die. Mm-hmm. And if it's as powerful and like, there really is just no way around it. I suspect that's what the adults are freaking out about. It's like, you can't, you have to, or, you know, you're, you're going to die or something like yeah. that. And the, the, why they would ever bring something like that in the school in the first place. Right. Like, I mean, the Triwizard Tournament is tradition, and it's super fun, but I mean, rules can be broken, and Harry is now in, in the tournament, and can't yeah. go back. Can't take that back. So he is the fourth member of the Triwizard Tournament, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he becomes the second representative for the Hogwarts School of uh, Witchcraft and Wizardry. The first champion selected is Cedric Diggory, who is a Hufflepuff, and he is handsome and charismatic, and there is a huge point in the book made that part of the reason why the Goblet of Fire is used is because it chooses, like, basically the best representative um, of the school. And so... Cedric is supposed to be the best of them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think it's really important to note his house, Hufflepuff, because up till that point, Hufflepuff had kind of gotten this rap of like, 
oh, this is where all of the buffoons and rejects go. Yeah, it's not fair. No, it's not. It's where the people who are, I don't know. Decent human beings. Yeah, pretty much. At this point. Honestly, (laughs) hardworking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it gets a bad rap, but it doesn't deserve it. Certainly not. Yeah. So as an adult, this is where I started to feel the same feelings that as a kid I felt about the World Cup, which is... I feel like all of the tasks drag on so long. Like, I feel like the entire school year could be done in, like, less than 200 pages. Right. And it's just like, here's the task, and then here's a bunch of filler stuff between this task and the next task, and then here's this task, and then I just, I appreciate the movie for the fact that it just, like, gets to it, you know? At the final task, there's a labyrinth, and the um, Triwizard Cup, which is different from the Goblet of Fire, this one is a pretty one, um, is at the center, and whoever gets to it first uh, is the winner. And before you ask, well, why wouldn't you just do that one task? There was a point system set up throughout the other tasks where those who did better got a head start in the um, labyrinth. Stuff happens where the two students from the foreign schools um, are kind of knocked out of competing, and then it's Harry and Cedric that get to the cup. And they grab the cup at the same time, and they're like, hey, it's a win for Hogwarts either way, and we helped each other out, so like, let's just both win. We'll tie. And it turns out, oh no, the cup is actually a portal to a spoopy graveyard yeah. <laughs> where Voldemort is brought back to life. I mean, he hadn't died, really, but uh, he's brought back to like a full human adult form. Yes. He kills Cedric, which is devastating, and he duels Harry. And this is where we find out that the wands that share the same phoenix feather core uh, cannot fight against each other. And, uh... It's a big deal! Yeah. And Harry is able to get away, and he goes back home, and congratulations, Harry, you won the Triwizard Tournament, your prize is PTSD. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then everyone starts, you know, everyone's been ignoring Harry from here, from the beginning until here, but now they start super ignoring Harry. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways, but they, they ignore Harry in his... Um, mental well-being, I suppose. Yeah. They still obsess over him quite a bit, but not in the right ways. Yeah. Yeah. Not in a, hey, you're a 14-year-old who's seen, like, horrific things. Let's talk. Do you wanna, like, yeah, let's just talk about it. You let's talk about feel. it. Get some sandwiches or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> just go out for a coffee. You don't have to feel one way or the other. Just, <laughs> yeah. just, just what's on yeah. your mind, Harry Potter? Oh, beef. I got beef. Yeah. Um, I have kind of been saving this for the end of the summary because I don't, I feel like it just makes it very complex, but the main villain of this book is not Voldemort. It is actually a man named Barty Crouch Jr. He is the son of uh, a government official, and he was a supporter of Voldemort when Voldemort was in power the first time. And he went to prison for it and then broke out and was actually a kind of key member 
um, a key part of getting this plan mm-hmm. to bring Voldemort back to power. Sorry, my crying was just one of the few things that I liked about the Goblet of Fire was Professor Moody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how, and then, yeah, oh. I felt like at last, somebody who, like, cares. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's not going to ignore what's going on and oh, yeah. not be an annoying adult. And then he turned out to be a Death Eater, and it was like, oh. Bamboozles you for sure. Yeah. <sighs> well, but I have to say, like, that's actually kind of what I like about it because he is the most competent villain uh-huh. in the entire series. <sighs> Yeah, he really is. He he understands that in order to have a good disguise, he really has to commit to the role. So he disguises himself as Professor Moody, the uh, new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, and also someone who um, belonged to the Order of the Phoenix, which yeah. we will talk about in the next story. So he's very close to Dumbledore, and he's extremely trusted. Yeah, and he just Crouch plays to that part extremely well you know and he offers like emotional support like hey potter do you want to talk about this when neville will like when he sees that neville is kind of traumatized at the beginning of the book he's like come here lad let's talk about it because i know that your parents are insane because of one of the curses that i just showed you yeah even though he did the torturing he's like oh yeah sorry about that come here (laughs) yeah he's like come here let's have some tea oh and here's a book for you too yeah about about a topic that I know you're interested in. Like, yeah. no adult had showed that level of interest in yeah. Neville's schooling. Yeah, he even takes interests. revenge. He even takes revenge on Malfoy for them. Like, he's... Uh, yeah! He's the favorite. Yeah, and so he actually would have been 100% successful if he had just waited 30 mm-hmm. seconds after Harry Potter got back yep. from the graveyard. If you just waited 30 seconds instead of taking him to his office right away, because it's mentioned in the book... That's what drew the, suspicion. The real Moody would not have taken Harry out of Dumbledore's sight yep. after something like that. You're so right. So, like, literally just waited. Just counted to 60. You know, <laughs> one minute. And then been like, we've got to take care of him. Yeah, it was just too quick. It was... yeah. Oh man, you're right. It, he really was the most competent. That was a that that was a really intriguing book. Yeah. So, I mean, like I mentioned, you don't really have to sell me on this book, but yeah, um, just do it anyway. Um. Well, you sell know, me, sell me on this. Rereading it, I had a lot of the same feelings as you did rereading it. Um, I really did understand the reason why things were done the way they were and wh- how why they needed to expose like the greater world, and that really is the that really is just the most important part to me because I still found myself getting bored in between tasks, but I found myself taking more notes than I had on it, like in any other book so far, you know? So I was like, Oh, this is really, really funny that they mentioned like just this really, really impassing obscure thing. And, um, it really does. The fact that there are wizards in other countries, just, I can't believe I was so stupid. I mean, I never really considered it, let alone really fleshed it out. But I mean, there are wizards all over the world. Mm-hmm. And that begs the question, do they have different languages for different spells? Like, do they, yeah. how often do they communicate? What are their histories? I know the histories of like witches in like America, like in Salem and stuff. But what's the history of witches in, you know, other more ancient parts of the world? And gosh, it's just, it gets you thinking about 
like a fictional world and then I remember it's fictional and then I get sad. <laughs> <laughs> it just it it's that cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was just, just a stage gonna, setter, you know. You're just gonna have to write fan fiction. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> what else so. to tell you, Carmen. <laughs> oh man. I I could very easily do that scarily enough. I could do that. Oh yeah. I think we'll we'll get to that when we get to the end of the talking yes. about the books, but I think that the fandom is actually part of what makes the book so enjoyable. Absolutely. Hey there, folks. You might be looking at the time on the track right now and wondering how we're going to fit the next three books into the next two minutes. Psych! We're not. We ended up recording for so long that no amount of editing on my part could keep this episode down to a reasonable length. So we made the decision, after all was said and done, to make this into a two-parter. So I will be signing off of this episode solo today. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you're enjoying our discussion so far. I know we've had a lot of fun discussing Harry Potter. And we'll be back in two weeks with the second half of this episode. As usual, you can find us on Twitter at Kittens and Kanye and on Instagram at Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us on iTunes, and we'll give a special shout out to you in future episodes. So until next time, I'm Audrey Stratton, and this has been Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. Bye!